Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. On Tuesday, U.S. President Joe Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin had a two-hour video call. These are two leaders who don't usually talk that often. Hello. <laughs> Good to see you again. I, uh, unfortunately... Last time I we didn't get to see one another at the G20. I hope next time we meet, we do it in person. Biden and Putin were speaking because Russia has gathered a ton of troops along parts of its western border. And that's making global powers worry that they're preparing to invade Ukraine. You get the sense that Russia is, is escalating um, and will continue to escalate until it gets what it wants. Mark McKinnon is the Globe's senior international correspondent based in London. He'll give us some context about why this is happening and how the situation could quickly escalate. This is The Decibel. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So just how many troops has Russia sent to its border along Ukraine? I interviewed the defense minister on Saturday, and he said 94, 95,000 soldiers. The foreign ministry, which I met with last week in Kiev, said it was 115,000 soldiers. And I asked, you know, how do we come up with these different numbers? And I, it apparently depends on whether you measure 200 kilometers from the border or 300 kilometers from the border. So there's a lot of Russian military might backed by 1,200 tanks, 330 aircraft in the border area for sure. Wow, that I mean, that sounds significant. I'll just say, like, that's a big number. It's a lot of tanks. It's a lot of people that are right on the border there then. And it's expensive. I mean, this costs the Russian state a lot of money to move it forward and to, to equip and to, to have in position fuel, food, the logistics of this. It, it, it's a big operation. And so the question remains, why are they doing it? Would you say, and from, from the, the people you've been talking to, uh, is this the size of an army that could invade Ukraine? What that that is agreed. This is a an army large enough to push uh, deep into the Ukrainian state to to inflict a lot of damage on the Ukrainian army. Whether it's a large enough force to occupy, and and that's you know as the we saw with the United States invasion of Iraq, those are two different issues. At this point, no, I don't think there's enough troops to you know sort of seize and occupy Kiev, for instance. How do we know about these estimates of the Russian presence? You, you had a, a bunch of numbers there, but where is this information coming from? So we have three kind, they're very different sources, and, and um, there's the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian intelligence sources. We have American intelligence telling us these things. And what's happening is, you know, people are in Russia and Ukraine are, are filming uh, the movements of the military through their through their cities and towns. And you can imagine if you suddenly saw in Winnipeg hundreds and hundreds of tanks going through on a rail car, there would be people that would be filming this. And those films, those videos would get posted online to Instagram, to TikTok, to Facebook, whatever. And so now you have these these open source experts who take these this raw footage and put it into context. They'll zoom in on every available detail in these videos. This guy that I was sitting down with just said he talks incredibly fast and, and his fingers move even faster when he's uh, manipulating the uh, the videos. But he was showing me, um, it, was a, it was a random clip, very dimly lit, sort of, it was early morning in, in somewhere in Russia, and there was a train rolling through a small town. And he pauses it, he zooms in, and he finds a number on the side of one of the rail cars. Using this, he goes onto an online database of 
which you know did exist until a few days ago, now looks like it's been taken offline, which t- tells you that they're they're someone who doesn't like the work that's, that this type of work happening. Um, showing where every rail car in Russia is was where it originated, where it's you know sort of like plane trackers now exist. Using that, he established that this train had left from a base in the North Caucasus and was carrying equipment that belonged to a Russian military unit that's that's usually based in the North Caucasus near Chechnya, and that the train's final destination was Kerch, a city in the Crimean Peninsula. So therefore, you can see troops that are usually on Russia's southern border being deployed towards Ukraine. As you just mentioned, Mark, you were, you were just recently in Ukraine, in, in Kiev. What was the mood like when you were there? It's an interesting one because I was there in April when this this last buildup happened. And I'd say in April, people were quite nervous in, in Kiev. Russia, again, massed a very similar size force. And the crisis ended when Putin and Biden held that summit in Geneva last year, back in, I think, June this year. Um this time around, I'd say people were a little more blasé, perhaps because it's the second time this year. The defense minister that I spoke to over the weekend said they're intentionally trying not to raise the alarm about the size of this Russian force and its possible intentions because they're worried. If the government starts to broadcast you know, the, the, the range of possibilities here, people would panic. He's talked about millions of people fleeing towards Europe. He talked about sort of um, a refugee crisis being instigated if, if the Ukrainian government was seen to panic. So they're trying to keep calm at the top in Ukraine, which, of course, is leading to accusations that maybe they're being a bit too calm and they're not being serious enough about what's happening. So they're being calm because they're so worried, though, it sounds like. This is an actual threat, I guess, from, from their perspective. Absolutely. I mean, it's a range of possibilities at this point. No one from the Americans to the to the uh, Ukrainians to the two people that I interviewed that are Kremlin, former Kremlin advisors who know Mr. Putin personally, no one knows for sure, no one believes that he's made his mind up yet. And the way that Mr. Putin has behaved in past crises is he gives himself options. He will uh, move troops towards the Ukrainian border to give himself the option of grabbing Crimea um, back in 2014. But he doesn't make that decision until the last minute. So it makes it very hard for the Ukrainian government to know what level of alert to go on here. Is this just another bluff? Is he just happy with a meeting with Mr. Biden? Or is this the time where Mr. Putin decides he's going to have to use force to change the situation on the ground in Ukraine as he did seven years ago? Why is all of this happening right now? The, 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 long, the long and short story uh, goes back to 2014. And as I said, this pro-Western revolution in Kiev, the uh, Russians saw that revolution not as a popular uprising, but as sort of a Western orchestrated coup. They talk about it being a coup d'etat, and that's why they felt they took the action. They, need, they did seizing Crimea, which was the home of the Russian Black Sea Fleet and is the home of the Russian Black Sea Fleet and, and instigated this uprising in the southeastern Donbass area. None of that's been resolved over the last seven and a half years. Why is Russia pushing the envelope now? They, they point to a couple of other developments, including the expansion of a, a Ukrainian port on the Black Sea, which is being expanded to make it large enough to um, receive American warships. There's a British company that's building another port on the Sea of Azov, which is a basically a Russian-controlled body of water at this point. They see both of these as NATO building facilities in a former Soviet republic and what it considers to be its sphere of influence. And that's why they're asking, demanding guarantees that this will stop. From a Western point of view, this is the Ukrainian state doing what the Ukrainian, what the, what the elected government doing what it's been, has a mandate to do, and this is none of Russia's business.
what is the Russian government and 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 Putin himself like? What is what have they said about what they're doing and and why they're doing this too? The Russian government says the talk of an invasion is hysteria. Um, it's been whipped up. At the same time, they've pointed repeatedly to a scenario in 2008 in Georgia, where the Georgian government, um, responding to shelling from another breakaway pro-Russian area, very similar to what's happening in Donbass, called South Ossetia in, in northern Georgia, and then Russia invaded Georgia. Ukraine says it's not. <laughs> it has no intention of of. Uh, escalating, but they are extremely worried about a provocation, about something happening along the front line, a false flag operation that will be used to justify whatever Mr. Putin has in mind. Do we have a sense of what Russia's red line is at this moment? Like, what would make them escalate the situation here? Their stated red lines are a Ukrainian attack on Donbass, which we, you know, it's, you know, it's very controversial. But if if that happens, we'd all have to look at exactly what happened, so to speak. Ukraine being invited to join NATO, but also they're demanding a halt to the construction of these two naval bases. And I think if Joe Biden agreed to that. Uh, and we don't know if he did or didn't. They said they made no concessions. That would defuse the crisis in, in the immediate term, because from a Russian point of view, these, you know, having facilities where NATO warships could dock, missile cruisers could dock very close to Crimea, is is intolerable from a security perspective. That's that's the language they use, anyways. You know, Russia's moved the red lines. To be honest, it used to be Ukraine can't join NATO. Well, Ukraine isn't joining NATO now. It's well, NATO's got to stop its activities in Ukraine. From a Russian point of view, they they thought they had secured a constitutional block on Ukraine ever joining NATO. They're concerned that the situation will continue to drift and that Ukraine will go further and further westward and further and further out of Moscow's orbit. They're trying to pull it back in at this point. Why is that such a big concern for Putin? From a Russian point of view, they believe, and and this is a matter that historians will argue about on you know for hours. That after the fall of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, Mikhail Gorbachev received assurances that NATO would not expand into the former Soviet republics. In two thousand four, uh, NATO invited in three the three Baltic states: Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, which were parts of the Soviet Union, and from a Russian point of view, violated that pact. A few years later, there was a membership sort of a conversation about bringing Ukraine and Georgia, the country we just mentioned into NATO as well, giving them an action plan, as it's called. So Russia sees this encroaching alliance that has never been um, invited to join. They take it quite seriously and they say, this has to stop. Again, from a Western point of view, these are democratically elected governments that have concerns about their security living next door to a, a, a big hostile neighbor like Russia. And it's their right to ask to join NATO and it's NATO's decision whether to accept them or not. So just to, I guess, just to step back for a moment here, there's been this escalation of military movement uh, in a very politically sensitive part of the world there. How is this affecting international relations, particularly uh, in parts of Europe? Canada, the United States, Britain, and some of the countries that are closer to the front line, Poland and Lithuania, for instance, are very strongly supporting Ukraine. And then there is sort of other countries in Europe, like France and Germany, that have you know long and, and, and important business relationships with with Russia, that are really don't want to see a, a major conflict in Europe, and and seem to be more interested in making an agreement with Russia that would um, perhaps 
not be in Ukraine's best interest, but maybe would keep the peace in Europe as they see it. Um, central to this whole conversation is the future of a pipeline called Nord Stream 2, which goes under the, the Baltic Sea and would bring Russian natural gas to Western Europe through Germany. That would cut out Ukraine's current role, where most Russian gas that goes to Europe transits Ukraine, and Ukraine gets a lot of money out of that. And also, it, it makes a conflict in Ukraine very um, difficult for the Kremlin because it can lose a major source of revenue. We saw Joe Biden's, um, talk, not, not himself directly, but Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, directly connecting what Mr. Putin does next to the future of Nord Stream 2. When it comes to Nord Stream 2, the fact is the gas is not currently flowing through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline which means that it's not operating, which means that it's not leverage for Putin. Indeed, uh, it is uh, a leverage for the West, because if Vladimir Putin... There was reporting last night by Reuters and Bloomberg quoting unnamed con- congressional aides in, in Washington who said they have an agreement with Germany now that says that if Russia invades Ukraine, that will be, you know, Nord Stream 2 will be put on ice. So the future of this this massive, it's taken five years, $11 billion to build this pipeline, is suddenly in question. And that may also be part of, of, of why Mr. Putin's escalating the situation right now, as he sees things tilting in a way that are against Russians' interests across the continent. And as he said himself, the world seems to only pay attention to what Russia thinks when there's a crisis. Mark, where is Canada really in, in all of this? So there are a couple hundred Canadian troops based in Yavodiv in the far west of Ukraine. Um, they've been there since, you know, shortly after the Russian annexation of Crimea. And they reflect Canada's longstanding support for Ukraine. I mean, after all, we were the second country in the world after Poland. And that was really just about time zones to recognize the Ukrainian state back in 1991. Um, 30 years ago last week, actually. But when I interviewed the defense minister of Ukraine, it was very blunt. He said, I, those Canadian troops are great. I wish there were 10 times more of them. I wish they were not in the far west of Ukraine. I wish they were closer to the border so the Russians can see them. Not fighting the Russians, but standing closer to the border so that there was a clear sign of solidarity that the Russians knew that invading Ukraine meant challenging not just the Ukrainian state, but but the West in general, there's not much sense that that will happen. I interviewed the uh, uh, chief of uh, Canada's defense staff on uh, last week in Kiev while he was visiting, and while he you know he was careful to with his wording, he was pretty clear that there aren't um, Canadian troops on on their way right now. He said that they they have to be very careful to calibrate their messages right now to Mr. Putin. It's a fine line between something that might deter the Russian president, or given that he said that, um, you know, the presence of NATO in Ukraine is a red line, he, you know, Canada surely doesn't want to be sending a couple hundred troops that end up being the causes belly here, the ones that provoke the Russian invasion. Uh, just lastly here, Mark, um, let's come back to Tuesday's call between Biden and, and Putin. Uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, a similar kind of escalation happened earlier this year, and, uh, and then the two of them had a summit in Geneva, and that kind of eased tensions a bit. Do you think that the dialogue this week may end up doing the same thing and, and easing tensions again? I don't think this phone call has resolved anything yet. I mean, it may set the stage for another, you know, another person-to-person summit happening. I think what happened in, in, in April, in June, was that um, Russia built up its forces. They, Mr. Biden offered this summit. Russia stood down. They had this, you know, a meeting described as constructive. 
But then six months later, the Russians saw nothing had changed on the ground. So this time, they're much, their language is much tougher. Um, the red lines keep, as I said, becoming more complicated to meet. Um, you get the sense that Russia is, is escalating um, and will continue to escalate until it gets what it wants. Is it possible for the West to give Russia what it wants in this situation? That I don't think is that that's the real problem here is that Mr. Putin, having done this twice, uh, risks looking quite weak if he backs down without securing something that he's come after. And I don't think there's anybody, any appetite in the West for giving him what he wants, especially to reward this behavior. So we're, you know, I, I hate to predict anything, but it, it does feel like a very dangerous moment. And I don't think that yesterday's phone call resolved any of that. Before we go, we have a quick update to another story we've been following. On Wednesday, Canada announced a diplomatic boycott of the 2022 Olympics in Beijing. It joins the US, the UK, and Australia. Okay, that's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Timon Johnson is our intern. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby's our editor. Kyle Fulton mixed this episode. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer. And Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Mark McKinnon. You can find more of his work at theglobeandmail.com. You can also email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at ManicaRW. And if you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.